Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness! Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us, and music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of a dream. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. All right, yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Gonna run that as the open. The back and forth between McAdams and Baton is what makes Game Night sing, which is not to slight Horgan's dry wit or Magnuson's elegant idiocy or Morris's magnificent Denzel Washington impression. That's from Sam Adams of Slate talking about the movie Game Night, one of the films we'll be reviewing this time on Cinephile. Great to have you back as always. Uh, thanks to all those who listened to the Oscar broadcast the last two. And as always, please rate and review on iTunes. Let us know what you think. I rank my movies at a four Maple Leafs. Please give us a rating at a five stars and post a review as well. Happy birthday to my man, Dan Stanzik, who, and I think it's a cheat when people write down birthdays or do anything like that. So I'd say you have to know it in your head. And it's actually quite easy with Danny because Pi is his birthday, and it's the same birthday as Steph Curry. So in the morning, I read my notes, stats, and trends from ESPN, and it says Steph Curry's birthday, and I go, oh, let me hit up my boy Stanzik, 7.07 a.m. I don't need a reminder. Happy birthday, buddy. Thanks, man. Week ago. It almost feels like it was a year ago already. 32? 32, even though on Golik and Wingo, we had Chris Canny filling in for Mike Golik last week because he was in Africa. Ask him. He'll tell you about it. And so Trey Wingo, like nine o'clock that day is like, you know, we've waited too long. It's our producer's birthday. And he's like, how old are you? I'm like, not a day over 28. And he's like, wait, really? And I'm like, no, of course I'm not just 28. And I'm like, let's ask, what do you think? How old do you think I am? And so we asked Chris Canny, do you, do you want to know what he guessed? I was going to say, you play older because you're smart and mature, but you look your age, which is 32. So I'm going to guess Canty went 35. 39. Yeah. See, I was going to say, you play older because you're smart, you're educated, you got a beard now. So he's probably like, yeah, this guy's like 40. Which was horrifying to hear. And let the record show, he's only like 35, 36. So he, he added a few onto his own age for me. I was about to say, it's, it's embarrassing. First off, that Canty's, I don't even know him, but that's an embarrassing (laughs) prediction. So I didn't slam him too hard. But two, it's because of the position they got. Well, he's a producer at Golik and Wingo. He's been ready. He must be of a certain age. Age. Whereas if we were at a restaurant somewhere, we just asked the waitress, how old is this guy? She'd go, I don't know, 30? Like, there's no doubt. If it, was, if it was doing St. Patrick's Day or while you're watching Syracuse, buddies, they go, this guy's double fisting. He's at least 27. Congrats to Q. If, if you guys beat Duke, I'm telling you, that game over Michigan State, I was there's no chance. You guys barely made the tournament. And I root for them because of you, because of Leo Routens, because of David Amber, because of Anish Schrock. <laughs> threw Leo Routens in yeah. Leo's a big Syracuse guy. And then I go, oh, my God, they're going to beat, they beat Izzo. Like, Bayheim beat Izzo. Yeah, stunning. I mean, I think they've gone far enough as it is. I didn't think they'd get into the tournament. We had Bayheim on Golik and Wingo. He said he gave themselves like a 5% chance to get in. Yeah. And same thing two years ago. I don't know. Why are we doing it? By the way, why are we doing a sports show? This is a movie podcast. Let's, we, let's get out of there. We don't get to catch up normally, so that's why we're doing this. But all right, game night coming up. Speaking of sports, Tony Parker, the uh, multiple NBA champion of the San Antonio Spurs, will be coming up. He's got a new film. He's the executive producer of a movie called Amateur. It's on Netflix, so make sure you check it out. We're talking to him and the director, Ryan Koo. We've also got Rob Lemley, friend of the podcast, who will be reviewing a new soccer film. Lem is a big soccer guy, so he's our expert on that. Plus the Lions Den with Zoe Deitch, and we've got Every Man as well. Yeah, this Tony Parker movie, he's French. What's the line about French films? Uh, oh, yeah, it was Mammoth's line. He goes, most movies have a beginning and a middle and an end. French films don't, which is why they're so effing boring. 
<laughs> All right, that's, I mean, we got a French director here, a producer, whatever he is. Yeah, French, it's not a French film, though, is he? No, no, no. It's an American movie. It's about a 14 year old named Tehran who is ticketed for stardom with regards to the NBA. And then he's Josh Charles, by the way, the good wife, sports night, good actor. He plays his basketball coach. So he's trying to keep away the handlers from him and trying to figure out what college he's going to go to. So very timely right now with March Madness. But hey, since we, since we dove into Mammoth, why not? Let's go in this direction. Chicago is his new book. I read it in four days, 332 pages. It's outstanding. I got a tweet from a guy who said, I didn't know what a big Mammoth fan you were. Tell me what to, what to watch, what to read. I said, well, hang on a second. First and foremost, David Mammoth is a playwright. So you should read Glengarry Glen Ross. You should read American Buffalo. You should read Oleana. You should read Sexual Perversity in Chicago. You should read Speed the Plow. And if you say, well, I don't want to read plays, okay, fine. Then read his screenplays, The Verdict, The Untouchables, Wag the Dog. Then you can watch his movies like Homicide and The Spanish Prisoner and Heist. And then you go, all right, now I got a good idea of Mammoth. He rarely writes books. He's not a novelist. That's why, and I am ashamed of myself. I was traveling, and then I just was in a bookstore, and I go, wait, Mammoth has a new book out? They're like, yeah. And he mentions it in his master class, which Ryan Rosillo right now is taking and loving it. By the way, check out his master class. Mammoth's great in it. And I said, oh, yeah, he mentioned it. He has a book, Chicago. And here it is. It's out now. So check it out. It's set in the 1920s Prohibition era. Typical Mammoth. It's, uh, it's a couple of writers who uh, get involved with uh some malfeasance with regards to criminals. There's a character who runs a black whorehouse who is one of the best characters Mammon has ever written. One of the knocks against him is that he writes men so great and does not give women enough due. Well, this character is great. Uh, so that's another reason to check out Chicago. Filled with that classic, profane, pungent Mammoth dialogue. It's interesting reading a book by him because the prose is good, but really it's the dialogue that what that's what makes it sing. That's why you're there to, to read Mammoth. So it's a book that you can fly through. Check out Chicago. And in terms of uh, paying it forward, check out the WTF podcast of Mark Marin. Mammoth is a recent guest over an hour and he's amazing. I mean, what you'd expect from a writer, he is voluble to say the least. So Marin just tees him up and away Mammoth goes. This story I have to tell you on. I encourage you again to listen to the entire podcast. He has opinions on everything, but this is particularly funny. Marin asks us about being a script doctor. And he said, yeah, sometimes I don't just write my own scripts. People send me scripts. And he goes, so I got a call from a producer. He goes, listen, I paid a lot of money for the script. It needs work. Can I send it to you? He goes, sure. And he goes, but you've got to come at a certain time and blah, blah, blah. Mammoth goes, no, no, no. This is how we're going to do it. You send it to me. You can have a messenger wait outside and I'll read it in 45 minutes and I'll get it back to you. I'll give you my notes. And the guy goes, okay, maybe that's a little excessive. Fine. I'll, I'll FedEx it to you. We'll go from there. <laughs> it arrives in red paper and green ink because that way it cannot be duplicated. And Mammoth's name is all over it. He's like, okay. He takes a look. He's 10 minutes into it. Phone call rings. It's his son. He goes, so I'm calling my son, my son, and one of the things I've told you about Mammoth's masterclass, he's fond of the expression, we're doing the blah, 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 and the bippity-boo, which Rosillo is now texting me all the time, blah, 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 bippity-boo. So he says, I'm talking to my son with the blah, 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 and the bippity-boo, and I go back to the script, and the dog ate it. He goes, everywhere I look in my living room, there's red shreds of paper. And I called the guy, and I said, all right, but there's, there's no good way to tell you this. Um, the dog ate it. But the good news is he got through it. And Mary goes, what do you mean? He goes, what I mean is, it's awful. He said, this is how the script started. He goes, there's a light, but not the light that you're thinking of. A black light. A light illuminating all. And then there's a sound. Is it the sound of a baby scratching a crib? Or a different kind of sound? And he goes, this is the problem that plagues all these scripts. He goes, it's, it's always so abstract and expressionistic. He goes, it has to be a guy opens the door and then says this and blah, blah, blah. He goes, you know, I had another one. He goes, one of his good friends sent him a script that said, outside is where all the action that had transpired took place. 
well, what is the action? You need to tell me the action. He said, this is the biggest problem for anybody who's an aspiring screenwriter. Write it. He said, you know, when I'm adapting these scripts from books, he goes, books, it's a lot of exposition. They just keep hammering the same theme over and over, which is fine. But when I'm, when I'm writing a screenplay, who is the hero? What is the plot? Who is against him? What is the adversary? And everything has to be what happens next? What happens next? And then what happens next? And he said, when I write the script, whatever, every time they hate it. And Marion goes, what do you mean? He goes, the producers? He goes, yeah, they hate it. They go, no, okay, where, where's the scene where he confesses his love to his son? Where's the scene where the mother comes in? He goes, no, we're not doing that. I'm, I'm writing the script. And Marin said, he goes, I love the verdict. Shout out to Mark Marin. Also has good film taste. And Marin goes, thank you. He goes, I watch it like once a year. He goes, I love that movie. He goes, yeah. He goes, I spent 10 years in Boston. So I feel like I got that vibe. He goes, did you like the film? Marin goes, yeah, I thought it was very good. And he goes, did you, did you have any, because it was adapted from a book. And he goes, yeah. He goes, Lumette screened it. And I was there at the urinal after the movie. And the guy next to me goes, did you like the movie? And I said, yeah, I thought it was very good. And he goes, oh, I wrote it. Maybe because, right, good to meet you. <laughs> I'm the guy that adapted it. So it's a very entertaining interview. Uh, but he's got lots of ideas and lots of stories. He's, uh, if you Google, there's a very famous article. Mamet said, when I stopped being a brain-dead liberal. And he's got a lot of very strong opinions on being a, a conservative. And Marin didn't go in that direction. I wish he'd poked him a little bit. But Mamet did say this. He goes, listen, I've got strong political opinions. But let me tell you this. Both sides, all of them are nothing more than whores and thieves, period. <laughs> is that right? He goes, yes. He goes, what kind of a sick person? I feel bad saying this because Dan's father is a politician, but he goes, all of them. He goes, they're all whores and thieves. <laughs> the great David Mamet. Check it out. WTF, Mark Maron's podcast. Uh, since we're starting with my favorites, how about my man Al Pacino? He's got a new film. He's playing Joe Paterno in the HBO biopic. And so I am so jealous of David Edelstein, who wrote an article for Vulture.com. Check out the article. It is a great long read because Pacino's Way, which is a 31-film retrospective, is currently taking place at Quad Cinema in the Village in New York City. And it says in the interview, he talked for three rambling, absolutely delightful hours with Pacino, now 77. And he's got tons of stories, and they're showing all of his films. So hopefully people can check out some of the movies there. The familiar stories, but the fact that he grew up poor in the Bronx. Mom passed away when he was young. I didn't realize he was friends with Martin Sheen back in the day. He said he and Martin Sheen actually were working on some plays. We get into Indian Wants the Bronx, and you go to the Panic in Needle Park, and The Godfather, and the famous stories about how nobody wanted him, and he goes to Serpico and Dog Day, etc., what I found particularly interesting is a movie called Scarecrow, which not many people know, unless you're a real Pacino file. Uh, that is a movie that came out after uh, The Godfather, and he did it with Gene Hackman. And Pacino said, I love Gene as an actor and as a person, but it was the assistant director he talks about. What can you say he asks about a movie that comes in 17 days ahead of schedule? Rehearsal, improv, time to waste productively. That's Pacino. He does not like to work quickly. And he said with Scarecrow, Quentin Tarantino met him recently and told Pacino, watch the first long tracking shot. Vilmo Sigmund was a cinematographer, and Pacino was amazed by its beauty and expressiveness. Then the writer, David Elstein, said to him, Jerry Schatzberg, who's the director, is almost 90. He said he's revered in France. So then that made Pacino think of the other Jerry Lewis, the other Jerry who's revered in France, which is Jerry Lewis. And Pacino described a scene in The Bellboy in which Lewis fusses with a single chair in an empty ballroom. He said it's one of his favorites of all time. He agrees that clowning is essential to his acting and relies on his directors to protect him. And they talk about the clowning in Dog Day Afternoon, the fact he understands his character. But, you know, at times people have criticized, of course, Pacino for getting a little bit over the top. And he said that, you know, listen, what, what he does is he just tries to break free 
and then just let the performance take over. And if at times it's a little bit broad, he can understand that, but he, he doesn't necessarily appreciate the criticism. And particularly, he says this, look at the four gangsters people often talk about with me. Michael Corleone, Tony Montana and Scarface, Carlito from Carlito's Way, and Lefty Ruggiero and Donnie Brasco. They couldn't be more different. Pacino's Montana is, this is the writer now reading, Pacino's Montana is huge and burns like a filament, a purposely two-dimensional character in a film that director Brian De Palma calls a Brechtian opera. And Pacino loves how Tony became a cultural icon, however cataclysmic the trajectory. Carlito, on the other hand, is a man who gets out of prison and wants to put his life in order, the opposite of Montana, who manufactures chaos. Lefty is a mafia middleman, a second raider striving to rise in the ranks, but brought down by a surrogate son who turns out to be an undercover FBI agent. Sometimes Pacino says he goes overboard, sometimes underboard. But as Lee Strasberg used to say, don't do what you can't do, do what you can't do. Don't do what you can do, excuse me, do what you can't do. That's how you learn. And there's a good quote I want to pass on from Michael Mann, who said, De Niro sees the part as a construction, working incredibly hard, detail by detail, bit by bit, building character. Pacino is more like Picasso, staring at an empty canvas for many hours in intense concentration. And then there's a series of brushstrokes, and a piece of the character is alive. Again, quoting the article, Pacino says, isn't that great to hear that? I'm so glad, because I remember hearing Picasso, who stares for 12 hours at an empty canvas. So I play around with stuff. When I find something, it's a combination of doing it so much in my life and also saying, I don't know about anything at all. Cannot wait for Paterno. Once again, that's coming out on HBO in April. Pacino says the character, obviously, is very disturbed, had to go through all. We all know the story of what happened. He also mentions The Irishman and said the film was shooting when Pacino signed up. Scorsese warned him it would be like a moving train, which is not how Pacino likes to work. But he trusted Scorsese and De Niro enough to hop aboard. The budget of the film produced by Netflix is big, getting bigger. The money will doubtless help to underwrite Pacino's next theatrical experiments. The movie has finished filming, and I neglected to mention in my name dropping, I did see Ray Romano at Kimmel's party as well. And I did the rather embarrassing move as Romano was walking out of the party. I ran past him and then made it seem as if I was casually walking towards him. And I said to him, Ray, I love that scene in the big sick, 9-11. Oh, my God. And Romano said, he's not breaking stride, by the way. He's leaving the party. He said, well, I didn't write it. I just said it. I said, no, that's a great line, Ray. And I said, by the way, I can't wait for the Irishman. Romano's response to me was, well, you're going to have to wait for a year and a half. (laughs) It fails shooting in March of this month. And now when Romano said that to me, I I Googled, I looked it up. They said Pacino, or Scorsese, excuse me, said at least a year to edit. So we're looking at fall 2019. Think about that. They've shot the entire movie. And now Marty needs at least a year to put this sucker together. Uh, very interesting. Uh, last thing, this is really interesting in the article. <laughs> Pacino said this, because he, he kind of second guesses himself, I think, a lot of his parts. So he wrote the author an email, which I thought it was nice the author shared it. He goes, hi, David. I just want to say in passing an interesting thought, acting is a very private affair. Actors talk about it and say, do this and that. But when they are alone and within themselves, they go where writers go. After a while, that's what's so pleasant about it. It's between you and you. And believe it or not, that's when the creative moments come. Just as an aside, I think you will get what I'm talking about. All right. I hate to be with you with that spiel I gave you in your head. Ha ha. Man, I talked a mile, didn't I? I'm going to bed. Best. Al. Pacino, the best. Check out the whole article, Vulture.com. It is a great read. Game night. Speaking of good comedies, you're saying, well, there's not so much here right now, right? Out in theaters, yeah. Red Sparrow, disappointment. There's not so much going on. Well, here's the good news. Game night is a terrific comedy. Saw it in St. Louis. And here's the key. 
You know, when it comes to comedies, the, the failure can sometimes be that it just becomes a one-joke premise. So here's the premise of this. Jason Bateman and Rachel McAdams play a couple who love having game nights. Married couple, they invite people over and they play charades or Scrabble or Monopoly, whatever it is. And they're the pros of game night. That's how they first fell in love is they're always the experts at the game. Uh, so now they keep having friends over, et cetera. And then Bateman's brother comes back in the picture, Kyle Chandler, playing against type. You know, I think of him, he's so good in Wolf of Wall Street. Obviously, Friday Night Lights, I never saw, but I'm aware of his character, Bloodline. He always plays those straight arrows, right? Very sincere, very earnest. Here, it's good to see him loosening up. He's the wild guy. He's the crazy brother. He's the one who's uh, spending way too much money and driving the fancy car and a bit of a mess and drinking too much. And Bateman, of course, is a straight arrow. And Chandler comes in and kind of uproots everything and says, I've got a game night for you. So he sets up a game night, which is very elaborate, and it ends up having the feds involved. And there's a homicide, and only one of us is going to escape alive. And it gets very dark in a hurry, uh, and it gets very funny as well. And so I would uh, be remiss if I gave too much about the plot, because I want you all to check out Game Night. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. But it's a funny story, and I think what it really builds on is the the winningness and the likability of the leads. Bateman, you know how much I love him because I love Arrested Development. But Rachel McAdams, to me, is a real find. I thought she was excellent in this movie. She's funny. She's perky. She's cute. She's smart. Uh, she completely epitomizes what people talk about when guys say they want the girl next door. She is that fellow Canadian. And like I said, Chandler's good. I mentioned the Denzel blurb there off the top. There's one of the characters does a Denzel impression, which is very funny. Uh, so check out Game Night. You know, I think it's a good comedy. And right now, there's not a whole lot of the movies. So Game Night is my recommendation for all of you. Three Maple Leafs if you're looking for a good comedy. The other film to recommend before we get to Tony Parker and Ryan Koo, the director of Amateur, is Arthur Miller, writer, which is currently available on HBO. First 15, 20 minutes take a little while to get going. i got to be honest with you. I was thinking about punting. It's from Rebecca Miller, his daughter, who is, uh, of course, a director herself and married to Daniel Day-Lewis. One of the big flaws of the movie, there's no mention of DDL. They, they show The Crucible, the film, and they show a couple of clips of it, but I was waiting for her to ask her father, what do you think of my husband, Daniel Day-Lewis? But that never came, which is unfortunate. But she sat on this material for 20 years. It's interviews with her dad about his entire life, and then it comes to form. The reason why the first 10, 15 minutes kind of lost me a little bit like, you see him woodworking, you see him, like, you know, making a chicken. I go, well, listen, I, I don't want home videos here. Like, give me the good stuff. And thankfully, the good stuff comes. What's particularly interesting that I found noteworthy is Death of a Salesman is one of my favorite plays. And they talk about that period when that play came out. And he said it was based on one of his uncles um, who always had these grandiose ideas. He was always going to do this and do that. And that was kind of the template for Willie Loman, uh, this character. And he said it was amazing. He'd already had All My Sons, which was a hit on Broadway. But Death of a Salesman took Arthur Miller to a new level. And he said that there were so many stories about grown men weeping in the theater. And either they felt that they were Willie Loman or they knew people who were like that. But he said it really hit um, with the vulnerability of white males of that era. Uh, the play came out in 1949. What I also found amazing was the original title he thought about was The Inside of His Head. Thank God he went with Death of a Salesman. I think it's a much better title. But The Inside of His Head is a good title, but it's a little bit too much on the nose. You know, that expression means it's a little bit too obvious. And the inside of his head, he goes, well, that's really what the play is. It's really a balance between what Willie wants to be and what he thinks he could have been, the fantastical ideas he has, and then, of course, his past. And just that heartbreaking tragedy, the fact that he is the one who ruins his children's lives because they learn about his infidelity and he's dealing with his own guilt. And he said, Ilya Kazan, the famed director, after he read the play, said, oh, my God, it's just so sad because <laughs> it's just unbelievably sad. And yes, I want to make it. And of course, it became a huge hit. 
Um, and then it's interesting. I, I don't want to give away too much. Once again, Arthur Miller, writer, check it out on HBO. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. Very good documentary. They talk about his flops from the 70s. Of course, well in depth, his marriage to Marilyn Monroe. They have an interview of Mike Wallace talking about 60 Minutes. Said, you didn't write a whole lot when you were with Marilyn. He said, yeah. And he goes, why was that? He goes, well, to be perfectly blunt, I was taking care of her. She was a wonderful woman, but she just had so many issues. So I was always looking after her because there was too many pills and too many barbiturates and too much booze and too many people around her uh, who could not help her. So when I was married to her, I couldn't write. I was looking after her. Um, and it was, um, it's really quite painfully. Can you see him talking about his marriage? Married three times. The third woman is the one he was married to until she passed away. And that's Rebecca Miller's mother. And thankfully, he did find love later in life. What I found also very interesting, you think of this with artists. So he has these huge hits. Of course, not only All My Sons, Death of a Salesman, but The Crucible. Um, but then after the fall was a play he wrote, which is kind of about his marriage to Marilyn. And he said, the critics were really vicious towards him. They really didn't like it, even though the audiences did. And then in the seventies, he kept churning out plays, but the counterculture just said, who is this old man? Like he just, we're talking about Woodstock and the revolution and this guy doesn't get it. He's still stuck in the past. And he said it was really tough because he just kept churning out material. But then he had a, a second awakening once Dustin Hoffman did Death of a Salesman in 1985, which was not only a play on Broadway, but of course made into a film, which I've seen, which is excellent if you haven't seen it. And that became like the the typical Willie Loman was Hoffman's impression. And he goes, well, then now I'm back all of a sudden. And then The Crucible was made in 1995. And of course, the movie I love, The Salesman, which is Oscar Farhadi's Iranian film, which came out last year, one of the best foreign film, is about death of a salesman. It's been a couple of actors performing that. And one of the characters, in fact, ends up being a Willie Loman type character set in Tehran in present-day Iran. So it's amazing just how this type of uh, work can be so universal. So check out Arthur Miller, Writer. It's available currently on HBO. And joining us now are Ryan Koo, the director and writer of the new film Amateur on Netflix, and Tony Parker, the multiple champion with the San Antonio Spurs, who's an executive producer of the film. Gentlemen, thanks so much for coming on. Tony, let's start with you. How did you first become attached to this project? Uh, just my manager, who uh, he told me about the project. Uh, it was like now, like yeah, two three years that I've been investing in in movies and documentaries and and, and stuff like that. And so when he uh, pitched me the idea, uh, I just liked it. I thought uh, you know it made sense to uh, talk about you know that uh, sensitive uh, subject. And so for me, it, it was a thing that I wanted to uh, spend my time and uh, invest into. Uh, because I thought it was just not fair, you know, <laughs> with the, the NCAA and all that kind of stuff. And so I decided to, to invest in that project. Yeah, this is a story about a 14-year-old basketball player, an eighth grader who has all the potential and all the talents in the world. And then, as you mentioned, because of the fact, the way the NCAA has run, the fact these guys don't get paid, uh, you know, the coach has to pay for his services and then end up, end up being t- towards his downfall. What should the NCAA do, Tony? Do you think that this movie will allow people to say, you know what, these guys should be getting paid on some measure, whether it's sponsors or something? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think we should find a, a happy middle. Um, I come from Europe, you know, and I started my professional career when I was 16 years old and uh, and I was getting paid. And uh, you see it in other sports, you know, tennis, uh, gymnastic. Uh, it's a lot of sports where you start, you know, very young and, and you're getting paid. And uh, I just think it's not fair, you know, what's going on with the NCAA. I think uh, we should, you know, pay those those uh, young kids and uh, and find a happy middle because uh, it's a huge business and everybody is getting paid except the players. No question. Ryan, I'm curious, what was your motivation or your impetus for writing the script and then directing it? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, so obviously big basketball state, and I was uh, a player myself, uh, nowhere near as good as Tony. And actually, I guess my, my firsthand knowledge of the sport was really just elite players like Tony dunking on me. So I, I knew it. Uh, I knew what it was like firsthand. But but really, I got interested in the topic once the internet changed. Uh, just how young these kids were getting recruited, you know, with with YouTube mixtapes and uh, scouting websites. It just was placing a lot more pressure on younger and younger kids and, and more and more expectations. So that was really how I sort of came back to the subject uh, once I became a filmmaker. We're talking with Ryan Koo, the writer and director of Amateur, which is currently available on Netflix, and four-time NBA champion Tony Parker of the San Antonio Spurs. So, Ryan, there wasn't a specific athlete you thought of. You just thought, you know what, this is occurring right now in America. Let me create the story of a guy and what's probably happening to a lot of young kids out there. Uh, yeah, first of all, it comes out on Netflix April 6th, so it's coming soon. You know, right now the, the best basketball is probably in March Madness that we're watching right now. Uh, but, yeah, so it's coming out on Netflix soon. Right, and so this movie, do you think that, like I said, I, as Tony mentioned, I think it'll open up eyes, and it's obviously very timely and very topical. Is that something Netflix was attracted to? It's one thing to make a sports movie, but to make a basketball film about what people are talking about right now. For sure. We always wanted to put it out around March Madness, and uh, obviously with the, the FBI ongoing investigation into corruption in college sports, it uh, couldn't be more timely. And so, you know, as a filmmaker, you're just hoping that the, the topics you're exploring become more and more relevant while you're making the film. And with, uh, I think one and done is going to change. You know, there's a whole commission that the NCAA has formed around figuring out how to change uh, amateur athletics. And, and, you know, kids have been getting paid since, uh, since they invented the term student athlete. So it, it's high time that something changes. And I hope this film will be a part of that. I'm curious, Ryan, when, when making the film, do you, when you have to make a basketball movie, do you cast an athlete who can act or an actor who can play basketball? That's a great question. It's one of the real challenges of making a basketball movie. I think it's one of the reasons we haven't seen a lot of basketball movies recently. Uh, luckily for us, Michael Brainy Jr. from Power uh, has been a basketball player for a long time. So what I did is I had an audition like you would traditionally with an actor. And then he and I went outside and I played him in basketball. <laughs> and so that gave me an opportunity to see what he could and couldn't do. And we could put him with the trainer. But thankfully, he was already really good because he'd been playing AAU ball. And then for the rest of the basketball team, we took an approach where uh, most of them are basketball players who've never acted before. And I really wanted to capture the sport authentically and be able to show it without some, you know, without a guy taking a jump shot and then cutting to the rim and, and faking it. So the basketball is all real and our players could all really play. Ryan, who won when you played Michael Rainey Jr. in one-on-one? Actually, you know what? Here, I'll... I'll... <laughs> He, uh, it was all about him. You know, there was no, there was no real need for me to go on offense. So for the most part, I was, I was making him work for it. But um, it sounds like he lost. I don't know. He's, yeah, he's a little bit older now, so he, he probably had more of an advantage, I would say. Josh Charles plays the coach, Ryan. I, I obviously I like his work. Sports Night is really good. The Good Wife. I thought he really kind of embodies this character right now. You see these coaches who are powerless to fight the system, so they feel like they have to be involved in some measure of bribery and corruption. That's how the game is played, even though I think he comes across as well-meaning. Yeah, Josh is a fantastic actor. He's also a sports guy, so I knew that he'd have some passion for the topic. And, uh, you know, a lot of these coaches are themselves players. They're players in the game. And so if people have problems with the system, you know, you can, I guess the, the saying is, hate the game, not the player. Well, I guess that's the reverse. But, but Josh is playing a, a sympathetic role because he's caught in between uh, rules and institutions that may themselves be hypocritical. 
Tony, it's interesting. This coach is a guy who's saying, listen, the system is flawed. This is the way it's cracked. What's it like playing for a coach in Greg Popovich who often rails against the system and speaks his mind? <laughs> uh, oh, I love it personally. Uh, I love it. Uh, it has uh, his challenges. But uh, overall, it was just a great experience for me. I've been very blessed to be uh, with a coach like that, that believes, you know, in what he believes. And uh, and I think the, the coach... Uh, and amateur is uh, kind of the same way. And so I'm sure that Pop uh, will like the movie. What did Pop say when you told him you were doing the movie? Uh, he doesn't know yet. He doesn't know. <laughs> he knows about my involvement, you know, in movies because uh, we did a screening of Birth of a Nation uh, for the whole team uh, in training camp. Uh, he knows that, you know, I invested in the documentary of the first black man playing in the NBA, first to do it. So. Uh, I will, I'm sure that uh, when it's going to come out, hopefully I can show it to my team uh, maybe the, before the playoffs or something like that. We can do a little screening. Uh, Tony, I love that you have a passion for films. You've seen other athletes in the NBA. Karan Butler's getting into movies. Carmelo Anthony has talked about this. What are some of your own favorite films? Uh, I don't really have a, a favorite. Uh, I just like any kind of movies uh, that have a, like a great message and, and can touch me. And so that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this is if I can affect, you know, and have a, an impact, uh, and especially the movie we're talking right now with Amateur, if we can have an impact, a positive impact, like Ryan said, uh, help, you know, the future and the future of the NCAA and all those young kids, uh, I'll be very proud of that. Kobe's got an Oscar now, Tony, so the bar's been raised, my man. I know it's super high now, super high. Kobe, no joke now. <laughs> <laughs> wow, amateurs, no joke. Uh, I was joke. just happy when we won Sundance with Birth of a Nation, but, uh, but uh, Oscar, yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> exactly. Step by step, you're going to get there, man. Tony Parker. Exactly. Four-time NBA champion of the San Antonio Spurs, and Ryan Koo, writer-director of the film Amateur on Netflix, April 6th. Congratulations to both of you gentlemen for putting this film out there, and thanks so much for the time. Yeah, me too. And just to finish, I just want to thank Ryan. I thank Ryan for, for doing this. Uh, I think it's great to have a director and writers who wants to make changes, and I want to thank Netflix too. So hopefully it'll be successful and people will go watch it. And now, a thought from Geico Motorcycle. It took 15 minutes to click on the banner ad entitled, You Won't Believe What These Child Stars Look Like Now. Be dissatisfied, and kind of sad, about how the child stars look. And now your computer is plagued by incessant pop-up ads. Oh, this can't be good. To add insult to injury, you could have used those 15 clickbait minutes to switch your motorcycle insurance to GEICO. GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on motorcycle insurance. A Hollywood career spanning decades. And the tales of Tinseltown are told here. Inside the Lion's Den. With Ben Lyons. All right, now it's time for our recurring segment, The Lion's Den. Our man, Ben Lyons, of course, doing a great job on ESPN LA 710. You can follow him on Twitter and on Instagram. He will always be a part of Cinephile. And he spoke to Zoe Deutsch. Avid listeners of Cinephile know when we had Keegan-Michael Key on, he said Zoe Deutsch is going to be the next big thing. Well, her next film, which is out now, is called Flower. Ben spoke to her along with director Max Winkler. Take a listen. Congratulations, guys, on the film. As I'm sitting here, I'm trying to figure out who has the more disturbing, kind of twisted sense of humor. <laughs> is it Max for wanting to direct a movie about such an odd subject matter, or is Zoe for saying yes to do the movie? Or is it both? Yeah, it might be a tie, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're both disturbed in the sense that we don't find the movie weird or disturbing. At all. <laughs> like, I 
find the movie to be like a, a straight sort of drama. drama we never saw this as a comedy also, which was a really strange twist of events. Call me dumb. Call my reading comprehension skills poor. Didn't see it as a comedy, but you know what? Take it or leave it. Yeah, people seem to laugh, but, uh, you know, I think the reason why the movie works is because of how honestly Zoe plays the part of Erica and how complicated that part is and all the different feelings and emotions that go into what it feels like to be 17 and how messy that can be. Did you realize at Tribeca that the film had humorous moments and that audiences were laughing at certain elements of it? I don't... Neither of us are ones to hang out in the theater while it's playing just for our own anxiety purposes. And so, but, you know... We're not happy-go-lucky bunch. We're a little... Little neurotic. Sad go sadder. <laughs> um, but I think, no, I people, you know, you have test screenings and people start to laugh. And, and the company that produced this was extremely influential to me in, in what I found to be a balance of content between drama and comedy. You know, Rough House had, had done things like Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals that was very influential um, to me and my friends and the, the things that we like to make. And so there was always a humor in it, but, you know, the heart is kind of, I think, what both of us gravitated towards. You played at Tribeca, and then, Zoe, you had a chance to go to the Oscars for the first time. What Where's was that? you? What was that experience like for you? First time at the Academy Awards. And your 11th time. Thank you. Yeah. That was very scary, and I have will forever have um, a lot of gratitude to you because you asked me um, a question that I could answer, which was, "What was I going to eat that night?" Or real hard hitting stuff. I think it was well (laughs) for me at least. I think actually you said, "What would you? What do you want to eat? Not what are you going to?" So I said something that was obviously impossible because I knew it would be closed, Um, and I'm not going to give another shout out to that restaurant, Madeo Bolognese. You guys both grew up in the industry. You have family, obviously. It's family business. How do you think that impacts your career now as you get older and you're making your own path in Hollywood? Personally, I have a lot of gratitude to um, my folks and for being surrounded by like-minded people and artists. And um, it's really a blessing to be able to have people around me that can sort of give me advice, sometimes unsolicited advice, but advice. And it's and they know what they're talking about. So I I'm grateful. I feel very similarly. Yeah, well, congratulations, guys, on Thanks. this one. It's a lot of fun. I hope people get a chance to see it. Streaming suggestions. A couple of things here. One, The Silent Child, which won the Academy Award for Best Live Action Short, Dancing. I've seen it as well. Make sure you check it out somewhere. I just want to mention, this is what I saw at the crawl at the end of it. I just think it's so impactful. 90% of deaf children are born to hearing parents Over 78% of deaf children attend mainstream school with no specialist support in place. And deafness is not a learning difficulty. With the right support, a deaf child can do exactly the same as a hearing child. That really made an impact with me. So check out The Silent Child. It's available currently if you can find out where the shorts are all playing. As far as movies currently available, I got sucked into Affliction, one of my favorite movies. It's currently on HBO. If you'll recall, when I interviewed Willem Dafoe, I mentioned Affliction to him. And I quoted Lisa Schwartzbaum's review from Entertainment Weekly in which she said it's a magnificent feel-bad movie, a beautiful bummer of a movie, which Dafoe had a good chuckle about. Terrific film. Nick Nolte gives the performance of his career. He plays Wade Whitehouse, uh, who is a guy who is nearing the end. He has got an abusive father, won an Academy Award by James Coburn, 
best supporting actor. His abusive alcoholic father, who unfortunately has passed along all those traits to his son. He's dealing with the fact that he's estranged from his wife. He's trying to fight for custody of his daughter. And he also believes that his boss is involved in a murder. And Willem Dafoe plays his brother, Rolf, who rather unfortunately, kind of ends up setting way down that path. It's a beautiful film. Paul Schrader wrote and directed it. Of course, one of my favorites. Check out Affliction. It's currently available on HBO. Also streaming on Amazon Prime, available April 1st. Check out Sleepers. Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Jason Patrick. Really good cast. It was uh, based on a book. They adapted it into a movie. Brad Pitt, of course, famously in the movie as well. Check out Sleepers if you've never seen it before. Good, gritty drama. Dan can appreciate it. Set within the Catholic Boys School. Uh, Lorenzo Carcatero is the guy who wrote the book. Spaceballs is also available if you're looking for a good comedy. Your Schwartz is as big as mine. Let's see how you handle it. And stand-up guy, speaking of Pacino, I know he's taking a beating for a lot of his Latter-day movies, but I thought this one was okay. Two and a half Maple Leafs, stand-up guys. The best reason to watch it, it's him and Christopher Walken together. Two great actors and two great hams having a really good time together. A couple of old criminals. Alan Arkin's in it as well. Just watch it for the chemistry and the acting of those leads. Netflix, The Gift. Speaking of Jason Bateman, he uh, directed this film, which I think was a really good movie. I don't know how many people saw it, but it's actually a psychological thriller, and he plays against type. Bateman oftentimes plays the straight arrow, the good guy, the nice guy, as he is in Game Night in The Gift. He's the villain, and he's the bully, and it's a really good movie. Joel Edgerton, uh, maybe Joel Edgerton directed it, actually, now I think about it, but Joel Edgerton is the co-star in it as well. Rebecca Hall, really good movie. The Gift is available on Netflix. I've never seen Moon. I know. It's embarrassing. i got to go see it now. It's on Netflix. Sam Rockwell won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. And one of the movies people often point to, one of the best of his career, is called Moon. I've never seen it, so you should watch it just as I'm going to. It's available currently on Netflix. And Revolutionary Road, really good drama starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. Sam Mendes directed that. That's currently available as well. A good drama that I recommend. Hang on. Who else is in Revolutionary Road? <laughs> Michael and, Shannon. Okay, thank He's you. not well. He's not well. By the way, Michael Shannon's story, he watched the Academy Awards at a dive bar in Chicago. You've got to Google this story. Look up Michael Shannon Oscars. And and the film he was in won Best Picture. He could have been there. How did he not get an invite? Or did he obviously I think he just turned it down. Yeah, of course he got the invite. He's from Chicago. Is he shooting there? Is he like, you know what? I'm he just- lives in Brooklyn. Hey, listen, you're right. So I don't know. Why the hell is he in Chicago? He's shooting. I'm going to go watch the Oscars at a dive bar. So bizarre. More reason to love him. HBO Now. How about Adventures of Ford Fairlane? <laughs> Unbelievable. That's currently I don't know who the hell is going to watch it, but go ahead and watch Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Andrew Dice Clay, uh, of course, the famous shock comic who came back. He was in that Woody Allen movie, uh, Blue Jasmine. He was actually pretty good playing a blue-collar worker. Adventures of Ford Fairlane made his name, as it were. Where the Wild Things Are, which is one of my kids' favorite child books, and I, I love the children's book, Where the Wild Things Are, from Maurice Sendek. It's also a movie um, adapted, and I thought it was pretty good. Max Bredos, recent guest on Cinephile, who slayed. People are still telling me how great he was in Cinephile. He despises that movie. He says it's one of the five worst movies he's ever seen. So watch Where the Wild Things Are. Let me know if you agree with me. I thought it was great. Max hates that movie. I go, James Gandolfini, you know, he voices Carol. He goes, no, it's an abomination. And also March 24th, just from a man, Dan Stanzik, Atomic Blonde will be available. Great action scene. We love it. Charlize Theron. He's just an average man with an average life. And his reviews dictate that. Oh, right up my alley. First and foremost. Playing to my strengths. Dan Stanzik is. I thought it was a little, little much. Every Every man. I want to know what the right up my alley is. That the post? Like I don't know what movie we were. I, it must have been the post. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Journalism. Sure. So funny. 
What do we got, my man? Okay, round two, every man. Gone in 60 seconds. <laughs> yes! A Jerry Bruckheimer-produced film released in the summer of 2000, which has a robust 24% on the tomato meter. <laughs> wow! It stars Nicolas Cage as Memphis Reigns, a retired car thief, called back into the game from Mexico after his idiot kid brother Kip, played by Giovanni Ribisi, follows up a job for a foreign crime boss. Memphis is charged with boosting 50 exotic vehicles in about 72 hours, including a vehicle that has eluded him in the past, his white whale, his unicorn, which he has named Eleanor. Reigns reassembles his old crew, which includes Angelina Jolie, fresh off of her first Oscar nomination for Girl Interrupted, Will Patton, and Adnan favorite Robert Duvall. Yes! Much in the way that Eleanor is the one that got away for Reigns, Reigns is the one that got away for a grand theft auto detective in the L.A. Police Department. So it's a cat and mouse game, heist film, complete with energizing music, bad one-liners, and the requisite amount of car chase scenes. While in many ways it's the quintessential popcorn movie, there are a few larger themes that the masses can connect to. Most people have something or someone that they've unsuccessfully pursued, something they are striving for or hoping to accomplish. The lesson here is that that passion, that target, is obviously worth aiming for, so when it's in your sights, you have to shoot your shot. Furthermore, there's a scene where Memphis is telling Kip about why he started stealing cars. He says that for him, it was never about the money. It was just so that he could drive the cars. He loved the feeling, so that is what he did. Memphis's pursuit, while illegal, was in some strange way noble. We later learn, and minor spoiler alert here, but the film came out 18 years ago, so who cares? <laughs> but we later learned that the real reason Memphis walked away from the business, and I use business in quotes, was because his mother didn't want Kip to follow in his footsteps. Memphis, in essence, gave up his career out of the love he had for his mother and a brother. As it turned out, Kip became a car thief anyway, but it was a sacrifice nonetheless. I have a host of issues with the film, including a scene that was literally dog <laughs> but, <it's, laughs> but its success certainly helped springboard the Fast and Furious franchise, which I am proud to say that I have not watched. Gone in 60 seconds, clocks in just under two hours, and is well worth a repeat viewing, despite a few wrong turns along the way. Gone in 60 seconds. I'm amazed it has that low a tomato meter. It's 77% audience score, but the yeah. critics obviously hated it because there's a lot of cheesy lines. I feel like it would have been like a 60%, like exactly what you're saying. High octane, good action, some cheesy lines, but tongue-in-cheek. I remember it was, I feel like it was around the time, the same time as Swordfish. Maybe I'm off on that, but I feel like it was late 2000, 90s. 2001, I think Swordfish was. Okay. I mean, I obviously picked it because we had Bruckheimer in the last open, Nicolas Cage in this open, and right. I'm like, they work together a bunch. Let's find one and go with it. Gone in 60 seconds. I was hoping to also do the Everman in 60 seconds, yeah. but I didn't, you know, <laughs> wrote too much. I think our audience is going to like Gone in 60 seconds more than Grandma's Boy. That's well. I'm thinking Gone in 60 Seconds was an, an everyman type of movie, yeah, as no opposed question. to Midnight in Paris. All right. Thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. Uh, honestly, the reviews are a little bit lean, but at the very least, you can go read the Al Pacino article on Vulture and listen to the David Mamet podcast with Mark Maron, because both of those are fabulous. Thanks, as always, to Ben Lyons for the Lion's Den and Dan Stanzik. Let us know what you think of Gone in 60 Seconds. Tweet us, Cinephile ESPN, or tweet at Dan as well. We'll be back next time. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Burke Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing. But you know better, and your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.